Welcome to the Journey to Justice podcast. This is episode two of our Economic Injustice series, where we explore individual and collective action for economic justice in the UK and dive deep into causes of wealth inequality. In this episode, our speakers talk about challenging in-work poverty in Birmingham and rural isolation in Monmouthshire. You will hear from John Cotton, a Labour councillor in Birmingham. He discusses the issue of in-work poverty and his campaign to make the local council redress this and be a model for action. John introduces the real living wage for all council staff and 17,000 employees are now paid a real living wage. Birmingham has set up a Poverty Truth Commission to listen to those with a lived experience of poverty. So I grew up in Birmingham uh, during the late 70s and 1980s and uh, that was a city at the time that was kind of hit by Thatcherism, uh, hit by deindustrialization, the decline of manufacturing industry. And so I sort of grew up seeing, you know, real economic change affecting people's lives for the worse. Um, and also, you know, it's a, a kind of time of politics of, of social ferment as well. So there are issues around racism and discrimination, uh, issues around discrimination against the LGBT community at the time of Section 28. And so I sort of became politically aware with all of that going on. And it very much sort of drove my sense of things needed to change and that we needed to, we needed a fairer, we needed a more equal society. And that drew me ultimately into becoming a member of the Labour Party and getting involved in politics in Birmingham. And the, I think the, the, the thing that finally tipped me into joining the party was actually the, the, the poll tax uh, back in 1990. Um, it was the same time I was doing my A-levels as well, and I thought, I don't just want to write essays about this stuff, I actually want to get involved and, and do stuff to make a difference to, th- to issues that I care about. So that kind of started a journey that resulted in me becoming a councillor uh, on the city council when I was 25. And my role uh, within my portfolio is really to focus on those issues of social and economic injustice and exclusion. Now, we know that Birmingham is a great and thriving city in many ways. Uh, it's still a place that, that's attracted a lot of inward investment. We've got a thriving business community, lots of opportunities and tremendous diversity as well. But I'd argue there's a kind of a tale of two cities taking place here. So you only have to walk a few a few miles really to find a very different uh, pattern within our city where we have children going up in poverty, we have some of the worst child poverty statistics in the country, Uh, we have neighbourhoods where people uh, are trapped in endemic worklessness, we have serious health inequalities, you can add or subtract 10 years to your life expectancy dependent on where you live in the city. So part of my role is saying right, how do we change that pattern? I think it's become really clear over the, the, the last decade that just how uh, our economic model uh, it sort of like, you know, doubles down on injustice. And, and one of the most distinctive features of, of economic injustice in our age, I think, is that in-work poverty has become a real issue. So you've got half of those below the poverty line are actually in work. Um, and that, I think, is you know, an indictment of the, the kind of race to the bottom that we've had uh, with, with our economic model, uh, the changes that have been made certainly to the, the social security safety net uh, in this country over the last 10 years, which you know, is a net that has now had holes ripped in it by, uh, by uh, governments over that period. And what, what we wanted to do was look, look at what are the measures that we can take as a local authority to try and change that. Clearly, you know, national policy has the biggest impact. But one thing we knew we could do, because we were still uh, a major employer within the city, was um, start paying the real living wage. 
to all of our own staff. So this this is a really important issue around the real living wage because if you um if you look at the uh, overall statistics, as I say, I think it's about seventeen and a half percent of Birmingham workers still receive less than the real living wage. All the evidence shows that that's a much higher percentage if you factor in gender. Women are disproportionately uh, to be found below the level of the, the real living wage. So £9.50 an hour, uh, actually was, that was the rate that was announced earlier this week. So when uh, the Labour Party took back control of Birmingham City Council in 2012, the very first act at our very first cabinet meeting was to introduce the real living wage for all of our employees. So that lifted, um, I think it was 1,700 Birmingham City Council employees uh, out of uh, a wage level below the real living wage. So they're actually getting paid at a real living wage level that ensured that they could, you know, keep roofs over their heads, keep, manage the, the, the bills and everything else. So that was, I think, really important. But we then went further than that. So we said, look, we're doing our bit. We're leading by example. But what else can we do to drive up, take up the living wage within the real living wage within the city? So we looked at our supply chain, uh, we put in place changes to our contracting and procurement arrangements and basically said, if you want to do business with Birmingham City Council, we expect you to pay your employees the living wage as well. So that was on driving out take-up of the living wage through our supply chain. And there's been 600 plus non-Birmingham City Council employees who've benefited from, from that process. So you imagine if we were able to put money into the pockets of those workers get them up to that level of the real living wage what that would do in terms of an impact on poverty what it would do in terms of turning around people's lives giving them that sort of stability that security and it also circulates money back through the local economy as well so everybody benefits through through doing this so we want to be a, a city where employers pay the living wage as a matter of course and as I say, the council can do its bit and lead by example as an employer by paying that wage itself. But we need others to, to join us to encourage other organisations, other businesses to get on board. Because clearly the impact of COVID, uh, the economic downturn that that's likely to create, um, the real sort of chaos within our, within our economy as a result of the, the pandemic, the lockdown and afterwards, um, means that it is going to be challenging for, for many businesses. One of the, the, the things that we're, we're sort of saying to them is, you know, there has to be a just recovery and paying a real living wage needs to be part of that. Um, this isn't necessarily about wagging fingers at people and telling them they're wicked and evil necessarily. It's about how can we work with you to ensure that, you know, built into your business model is an ability to be able to pay the, the real living wage. And it's, it's not the only, it's not the magic bullet to fix economic justice in Birmingham, but it's a really important foundation stone. You know, we would not have been able to extend that hand of support and friendship to people who needed it. Uh, those who were isolated, those who needed food. We wouldn't have been able to do any of those things without voluntary organisations, faith organisations, community activists, getting out there, rolling the sleeves up and getting involved. And I think we've learnt something as a council from that as well, because, you know, we, we can't just sit as the city council and pull a lever from the top and sort of like dispense change and fix everything. That's not how it works. It's about partnership. It's about allies. And it's about, you know, that kind of collaboration and challenge to each other that makes it makes a real difference. And this has to sit alongside some wider stuff that we're doing. You know, this is, this is a city that's built on, on migration. Uh, you know, it's people from around the globe have made their home here. And that's not a new phenomenon. That has been going on for centuries in Birmingham. 
uh, you know, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different experiences, all different heritages, cultures have, have made their way and made their home here. The other part of my role is how do we build that cohesion between communities and ensure that, you know, we kind of build Birmingham together, we celebrate our heritage, we celebrate our future together. Um, so this, will, this involves us taking a really long, hard look at ourselves as an employer and recognising the fact that we've still got some structural injustices within our workforce. So we know that our black, Asian and minority ethnic members of staff are underrepresented, particularly at the higher levels of the organisation. And we set out a plan for, for seeking to change that because we need a workforce that actually reflects properly the diversity of our city at all levels. So within the, 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 the council, and I say that there's a really important thing here as an employer, we need to lead by example, which is why I'm challenging our chief executive and senior management quite hard on this. Um, so I referred earlier on to the, the, the inequities we have around race. Um, we also know that's also reflected in gender, so particularly at the top level of the organisation. So one, one of the things that we'll be bringing forward is changes to our recruitment practices. Uh, we're introducing something called the Rooney Rule, uh, which is actually drawn from uh, uh, American sport. Um, and essentially what that means is every time we shortlist for a position, we will ensure as a minimum there is a black, Asian or minority ethnic candidate and a female candidate. And that's as a minimum. It's not a you know, fixed quota. Um, just to ensure we've got some diversity on the shortlist that we're choosing from. And we're also saying, let's look at our recruitment uh, you know, interview panels as well here and make sure that they are equally as, as reflective of diversity and they match that rule. That's not, uh, as I say, a solution in its own right, but I think it's a really important step to just challenging thinking and, and, and ensuring that we've kind of hardwired into our system some kind of fairness and equity. I think we've, we've held a mirror up to ourselves and found that we need to make some changes. And that also means, you know, reflecting on how we use our civic buildings, for instance, to tell that story. Um, so a couple of years ago, uh, to mark the centenary of some women uh, getting the right to vote, uh, we renamed one of the rooms in the council house after Ellen Pinsent, who was the first ever woman elected to Birmingham City Council. And what, what we did there was, was turn that into a room that then commemorated the contribution that women had made in civic leadership over the, the, the last century. And I know it's, it's a small move, I think, but a really important one. We want to try and look to do the same now around celebrating the, the, the contribution of black, Asian and minority ethnic uh, civic leaders. And then we need to, I think, think, you know, just about how do we use our public spaces to tell that story? How do we tell those stories in our schools? Um, how do we, you know, interpret our history in a way that everybody feels it belongs to them? And that isn't about erasing history and it isn't about stepping away from some of the challenging things that our history throws up. Like any city, you know, there are dark stories as well as happy ones. And I think we just need to, you know, have a, an honest grown-up conversation about those things as well. Um, but I think if we reflect on how we tell the story about the city, we haven't always told those stories on an equal platform. Um, and it's really important that we do that. So people understand each other, where they're coming from, feel that they can be their authentic selves and celebrate who they are, and that other people can share in that celebration, you know, and you grow understanding that the greatest weapon against prejudice and discrimination is, is, is conversation. Get people engaged and talking to each other, break down barriers. That's how you build a, a stronger society.
And there's also the work that we're doing uh, to take forward a very successful initiative within the city called the Poverty Truth Commission, which is essentially about getting people with lived experience of poverty to almost speak truth to power, if you like, about how decisions over services, over policies directly affect their lives. Um, this is, I think, really important when you consider just how much COVID in particular has really brutally exposed the inequalities in our society. I mean, it's, it's a little bit frustrating because many of us have been going on about these things for, for many years. We've had 10 years now of swinging cuts being inflicted on local government. Um, so, you know, when, when austerity first started at the beginning of the decade, it was the budgets for local government that bore the brunt of, of, of a lot of those cuts. The problem is that when your budget starts to shrink, all of the stuff that you don't legally have to do, but often prevents people falling into crisis. So, you know, the kind of outreach stuff that you do with older members of the community to keep them active and engaged, or, you know, the, the, the kind of prevention work you do to stop people falling into a crisis around homelessness or falling into a sort of health crisis. Those are the things that get squeezed because you have to meet the statutory duties. And that's been the really difficult balancing act that councils up and down the country have been having to manage for the last, uh, the last decade. The, 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 the growth of food banks and food poverty, again, over the last 10 years, is one of those damning indictments, I think, of where we've ended up as a society. And I absolutely salute everybody who's supporting the, the, the food bank movement, whether they're volunteering in a food bank, whether they're setting one up in their community, whether they're you know, simply putting tins into the, into the, the, the collection uh, buckets when, when they do the shop at Tesco's or wherever. But, you know, frankly, what's our society about when we actually need food banks? This, this is just, it's hideous. And, and until we fix the economic model that we have, and until we ensure that people, like, you know, in the post-war period where people had meaningful work that was paid appropriately, they had a sense of security and a sense of, 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 of self-worth. And that then feeds into stronger communities, doesn't it, in the coming years? But, you know, we're really committed to just delivering on that basic issues around justice because... If everybody is able to participate in our city and our society, everybody benefits, you know, it's a win-win. You will hear from Rosemary and Brian from Friends of the 65 Bus based in Wales. The group was founded to keep the 65 bus route going. They lobbied councillors and MPs started a petition and encouraged support by talking to the community about rural isolation and climate change. Today the bus remains vital for those who are isolated, vulnerable or without a car, but is now increasingly popular with other residents and visitors. I'm Rosemary Corcoran and I'm a regular user of the 65 bus. I've been using it for over 20 years now. So um, that's me and my problem was that the bus was going to suddenly stop. The service was going to be taken away without any consultation whatsoever. So this caused me a panic and I thought I had to do something about it after being such a regular user. I couldn't just let it go without something happening. Well, my aim was obviously to try and overrule the decision the council were taking to cut the bus and obviously to keep the service running because it is a very important route. It runs between two towns in Monmouthshire, Chepstow and Monmouth, 
and it runs through several villages which have very, very few services, no doctors, shops, things like that. So it was very important that this bus kept going, not just for the older population, but also for the youngsters who need to get out and be independent. To start with, it was basically me. <laughs> Nobody else at all. It, uh, it was my, my idea to try and do something. Although I, one of the local councillors, Debbie Blakeborough, had also been involved um, previously when the bus service had had cuts to the timetable. So Debbie was on side with me, but from the general uh, people on the bus, it was me. Um, very simply, um, I'm not very technical. I don't use computers an awful lot. So I had to really revert to very simple uh, tactics to get my case across. So what I thought of was a petition, get as many signatures as possible. So I, I've lived in Monmouth for over 20 years now. So I be began using the contacts I had, the shops I knew in town, um, the cafes I knew in town, um, the pubs and the one or two shops that do exist on the route, I contacted them and got a paper petition in all of those venues. I also had one in the local community centre and in the hospital because, again, people use the bus to get to appointments. So, again, it was very important for their support. So, basically, I just put out paper petitions and asked people who were prepared to to just put their name on it and support the bus oh and I also put a big poster up on our garage uh, a gateway to say save the bus and so, so people driving by could see there was something going on so it was a very 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 simple campaign really um, but we got over 1400 signatures I sat on the bus all day one Saturday to try and get drum up signatures. So I went backwards and forwards between Monmouth and Chepstow, just chatting to the people on the bus, seeing why they used the bus, why it was important. I'm, I'm, I'm very um, keen to speak to people anyway. So if there was a chance to say something to somebody, I did. <laughs> and again, on the bus, if I saw somebody new on the bus, I would ask them how they felt about the bus and how, um, how useful it was to them and what they felt. And it, it, it was really a very personal campaign. Personal because I believe in the bus and personal because I did it myself, really. <laughs> well, I, I, I've always viewed a, a rural bus as a community service, but it's not only a community service. There is actually a community on the bus. We all interact with each other. We all know each other. We know if there's a problem. A little story about the community of the bus. There were uh, an elderly couple who were regular and one day the driver said to another passenger they hadn't been on the bus for some time. So that other passenger went round to see if they were all right. And it was found that they actually needed some social help and they needed some care taken in. So the bus, again, is a very important link because we all know each other. And therefore, it was a very personal thing to start with. But as the campaign developed, more priorities for keeping the bus running became very, very apparent. And as you say, for both older people, and younger people, because there are no services out in these villages. Um, there are there's one shop, and I think there are maybe two pubs on the route. And so people need to get to Chepstow or need to get to Monmouth if they need to do anything, whether they be young or old. So the, um, the, the bus is that link. And well, I, I think as the campaign developed, we could see that there were deeper um, 
values in the bus because Monmouth County Council, one of their, uh, well, their policies are basically com connecting communities, um, tackling rural isolation and climate emergency. They are their priorities. And of course the bus answers all of those. It links communities and it tackles rural isolation because it keeps people in touch with each other. People use the bus just to go downtown to have a pint in the pub so they can meet people. And obviously the climate emergency, it is taking cars off the road. And I think this is where Brian started to use the bus because he could see the advantage of leaving his car at home, putting some money in a jar, which he would have spent on petrol, <laughs> and then using the bus to go out for lunch. <laughs> I think the first thing to say is that the fantastic result of Rosemary's petition was that the decision was reversed, so the bus was saved. It's still running to this day. Um, there's a new vehicle on the bus route now, which we were very pleased with. Um, we've seen more passengers on the bus. Often when you run a campaign like this, the petition is won, the decision is suspended or, or rescinded, and then politicians particularly say to you things like, use it or lose it and that's presented as a very simple thing but actually it's not that simple because the service has got to be usable we've got to look at the service and say how easy is it to use is there good information is there any marketing or promotion any attempt to engage the community with the service and we've had to put a lot of effort into overturning this idea of use it or lose it because to make it usable, to make it successful, often change is needed. And we've had to work hard to try and effect that change to make sure we've got a welcoming, comfortable, reliable, punctual service that people will want to use. And that's been really important to us. What we recognised then was that things had to change. We couldn't just let the bus go on as it was before. So we had to generate that change. And I suppose to put it in simple terms, what we all wanted to see was a bus that we can all be proud of. So the community, the Friends of the 65 bus, the County Council, everybody involved, we'd have a bus that people could be proud of. So it was really important that we tried to um, change its status, uh, to have it seen as a community asset. If you ask people about buses, they like to say, oh, well, they don't really run to time and they're not very convenient and they're probably a bit dirty and all that sort of thing, a bit unfriendly. We had to change all that around. So I suppose, you know, the ultimate test is kind of, is the bus still there? <clears throat> and it very much is. Um, we've got a particular challenge at the moment of seeing, bringing the bus fully back to life uh, after the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, we want to work closely with the operator with Monmouthshire County Council to get the numbers back up on of passengers. They're already returning but we want to build on that and to see more people using the bus. It's really important that we connect the bus to as many agendas and policies as we can. The climate emergency, that's a new agenda for the bus. And it's really important that we've got new um, policies and challenges to connect it to. We did, we did a simple little thing with two new people who came new to the bus. And when they took their car for a service, they realised that they'd done 1,200 miles less miles than they did the previous year because they were using the bus to go to town. And a quick back of the envelope calculation told us that that would save something like a quarter of a tonne of CO2. So, so 
having that flow of information and discussion and debate was really important. And we also set, set up a, a Twitter account for the bus and we tended to use that for more what I would call kind of professional or political contacts. We've raised the whole profile of the bus, we've put it on a different level and you know we come back to this idea of this can't just be any old bus, this has to be the best bus. A lot of our passengers are still not using iPhones, computers, email and apps and we have to provide for them because that's an important part of you know how we go about tackling um, rural isolation and, and disadvantage. Our local newspaper is also very much behind us and they are very keen to put regular reports in of the bus, even just to say it's still running and people are using it. They've given us a lot of um, space in, in the community so people know that we are there and we are still running. So all these different methods are very, very important. There's not just one thing that has to be done. It all has to come together so that everybody's included. If you believe in it, then do it. Um, don't be afraid to become an activist. Um, I don't think any of us three ever expected to be. Uh, it, it is for ordinary people like us to be involved if there's an issue that you believe strongly in and you can make a difference. Um, be prepared for a long haul. I think um, that idea of, you know, once the service or whatever is saved, that's when you've got the opportunity to change things and make a difference and keep it sustainable for the long term. But um, don't be afraid to do it. Get involved and, you know, become an activist. It's worth it. Like Brian, I feel very proud of what we've achieved. I feel also very humble that what I've done has actually made a difference to so many people over the past two years. And I honestly hope it'll go on for the future because I think it is very, very important for rural communities to have the community service of a bus to get everybody out there so we don't get isolated, which leads to depression. Yeah, we, we are relentlessly positive. There are ups and downs along the way and you can feel quite gloomy sometimes, but this is all about being positive and genuinely being a friend to everybody who's involved in the bus. There are a lot of other rural buses out there in the UK, and if we can be an example to them to keep fighting, to keep the services going, I think we're achieving more than just saving our bus. We're helping a lot of people out there. For more podcasts in this series, search for Journey to Justice on any podcast platform. If you're interested in education for economic justice or community action, visit www.economicinjustice.org.uk to make the most of our resources.